Good day, good day. Thank you for tuning in to the Century Leadership Podcast. We are a culture of resources and relationships for spiritual leaders. My name is Jordan Matthew Ward, and I am your host. And today we have a very, very special guest on the show, Pastor Brady Boyd. Now, Pastor Boyd has been in ministry for nearly two decades. He and his family are out in Colorado Springs, Colorado, pastoring New Life Church, which they have been doing since 2007. Now, I got to interview Pastor Boyd at the Century Leadership Conference in April of 2017. And as soon as I started talking with him, I instantly felt like he and I were good friends. Uh, He's got this very warm, inviting, friendly personality that I think would make just about anybody feel comfortable talking with him. Uh, He shared some of his heart with me behind dealing with some of the tragic events that took place in his church. And he also shared some very, very profound wisdom for doing ministry today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this interview and listen to what Pastor Boyd has to share. One of the first things that I like to do when we do these things is just do five random questions at okay. the beginning, kind of break the ice, get to yeah. know each other a little bit. Right. So I've got five random ones for you. I'm so good. we're just going to rapid fire and go through it. All right? right. So the first question is if you had to choose between baseball, football, basketball, which one do you pick? Well, I love basketball. I coached basketball when I was a young man okay. and grew up a Boston Celtics fan. Oh, nice. Now, I'm not a Celtics fan anymore. I'm a Dallas Mavericks fan now. Okay, but, okay. But basketball is such a beautiful, poetic game, in my opinion. Yes. I definitely choose basketball. For sure. I, I love that. I'm a basketball guy. i played since like fourth grade, I think. Yep. Fourth grade through high school. Played a little bit at a very small Bible college in Kansas City. Yep. So I love it. And I agree. It's definitely a poetic, yeah. lots of symbolism in there. So yeah. yeah. Uh, real quick, why the Mavericks? Well, I, I grew up in North Louisiana, about uh-huh. three hours away from Dallas. Okay. And then I lived in Dallas, Fort Worth for a uh-huh. long time. So I just fell in love with them. And uh, so I was, um, you know, I just, I had open heart surgery in 2011 and I watched them win their only NBA championship while I was yes. in ICU. Oh my god! So I have this like these bonded memories with the Mavs. Wow! So I love Dirk, love That's the Mavs. Awesome. They're down right now, but wow! Yeah, yeah I went to a lot of games when I lived there. You know. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So I. Um before OKC, before we had our own team, my parents would take me down to Dallas to see yeah. the Mavericks. So Steve Nash, oh. that was my guy. Michael Finley. No doubt. That was my, those were like the golden years yeah. for me. And then we got our own team and I had to root for the yeah, home team should. at that point. Yeah, you should. You gotta be a homer, so. right. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, next question. Uh, tea or coffee? Oh, coffee. Coffee? Yeah. Black? Yeah. Totally Cream black. sugar? Well, I have a little I have a little creamer in it right now as I'm drinking it with you here, but yeah, coffee. Come on. I mean, I like <laughs> I like hot tea, but yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I uh I'm, I'm not from across the pond, you know, so <laughs> my tea drinkers. Okay. I had uh I've had two cups already, and yeah. after the last podcast, I was going to go down and get another cup. And I was standing there at the Keurig and I was like, "Uh, I should probably get decaf because <laughs> if I get another cup, I'm going to be like You've hit your me. max, all right. <laughs> All right. You got a man that knows his limitations. I like that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. If you had to choose between the 80s and 90s, oh, which that's do you so pick? easy. I mean, I'm a, I grew up in the 80s. You grew up I mean, in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, I graduated high school in 1985, college in 1989. So all my music, all my movies, all those are not, it's 80s. I nice. mean, I love 80s music. My wife and I on our date nights, we go to the 80s channel on XM Satellite. Nice. That's awesome. Crank up the 80s music, uh, big hair, big band. <laughs> What's your favorite 80s band? Oh, well, I mean, Dire Straits. 
Mm-hmm. I love Dire Straits. I love, um, I mean, they're just, I mean, I like any of the big hair bands. Yeah, uh, for sure. John Cougar Mellencamp. Okay. Big, big, big Mellencamp fan. Nice. Um, I, I, I love the Eagles, which uh, they're more of 70s and the 80s. Yeah. And they, they had multiple generations, but those are my band, you know. Um, nice. Yeah. Okay. We're going to go see Paul Simon in concert uh, in a couple of months at Red Rock in Colorado. So I have tickets to the Paul Simon concert. That's awesome. Definitely 80s vibe. That's awesome. Okay. Next question. For your own personal reading, Old Testament or New Testament? Uh, Well, I mean, I I read the New Testament primarily for Mm -hmm. my personal. I read the whole Bible. I mean, but if you ask me to choose, like if I'm on a desert island and have to choose one of them, I'd want want the New Testament. New Testament. um, But... I enjoy the whole thing. I mean, yeah, for sure. It's not a huge preference for me. Yeah. One of my, um, I probably picked the New Testament also. One of my favorite things here lately is finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Yeah. That's just like, I've, I've become borderline obsessed with, you know, just finding yes. those little moments where the Old Testament like gives you a glimpse. Into well, Jesus, I tell so. people, Jesus is the central character of all the Bible. Yeah. And if you sure. can't find Christ in the Old Testament, you're not reading it right. Yeah. For uh, sure. But the Holy Spirit's the best storyteller. Yeah. And so I agree. <laughs> finding Jesus in Genesis Finding Jesus in, in Deuteronomy, yeah. finding him in the Psalms, which is really easy. Yeah. Of course, you know Isaiah and the prophets start talking about the Messiah very carefully, but yeah. Jesus is the central character of the story. Yeah. No doubt about it. For sure. For sure. Okay. Last question. New York or California? All right. So that, I just came from Disneyland out in California. I uh-huh. love California, but the best vacation I've ever taken my kids on is New York City. Oh my gosh. We love the city. Man. And I love Manhattan. That's uh, awesome. I love walking the streets of the city. We've been there multiple times as a family. Yeah. And, we, and we've gone there for literally, it's an expensive vacation, so you yeah. can't go very often. But we have friends that have an apartment on 56th Street in oh. Midtown in the theater district. Man. And so they let us use their apartment. I'm so jealous. Right in the theater district. I'm so and jealous. So we go there and it's like one bedroom, the size of your closet at home for yeah. like $10,000 <laughs> a day or whatever. But it's a, but it, we love the city. There's a, I mean, it's very cosmopolitan, obviously yeah. 150 languages spoken on the streets of New York city. Wow. And my kids, they, they tell me today it's the best vacation we've ever gone on is New York city. That's so crazy. So I have to tell you my, and this is kind of sad, but the number one thing on my bucket list right now is just to go to New York city and be a tourist. Oh really? You've never I've done it. Never done it. Have you ever been to New York city? No, okay, never. You got to go. I've gone to Istanbul, Turkey, and I've gone to the seven churches from the book of revelation, yeah. but I haven't been to New York city and that's all I've ever wanted to it's do. It's not is like, mentioned in the book of revelation, by the way, <laughs> in New not, York city. I want to clear my, that up. Theologically, my, uh, let's don't get off. Let's don't get sidetracked here. My, uh, my <laughs> sister, um, she, she, uh, really loved Seinfeld when I was a lot younger. Yeah. And so I grew up watching Seinfeld, listening to music from New York City, and I always just wanted to go and I never have. So the fact that you're saying this, it's a sign. So it's to, confirmation. I need to make it happen. And that, that cafe that where Seinfeld is filmed yeah. is on the west side, uh-huh. right past the park or on 78th Street. So I've yeah. been there. It's really beautiful. It's oh awesome. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I got to make this you happen. You got to do it. Okay. Well, thanks again for joining us uh, and being on the show. Um, so what I really want to do is just kind of get into who you are as a person, yeah. um, maybe your backstory a little bit. Um, so why don't you go ahead and tell us where are you from originally? Well, I'm, I'm born and raised in Louisiana. Louisiana. And my wife is a Louisiana native. Mm-hmm. We uh, grew up, you know, uh, not wanting to be pastors. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually made a deal with God when I was a teenager that I would do anything for him <laughs> except be a pastor. 
I told him that. I mean, I think I said it out loud. Wow. Like, I, cause I really didn't, I mean, I, I admired the pastors in my life, but yeah. I never admired their life. Yeah. Like what the, the kind of life they had to live. They were, yeah. you know, uh, I grew up in churches where the pastor lived next door in a parsonage. I always yeah. thought they were sad looking yeah. <laughs> and, and the parsonages were always awful looking. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this must be, uh, it's a good job. It's an honorable job. I just thought, I just have higher aspirations. Mm-hmm. You know, like I really, I just never saw that as a life I wanted. Yeah. So my first time as a senior pastor, I pastored in a little <laughs> small church in Hereford, Texas, and I lived in a parsonage. Nice. And so I, I, you have to be careful what you say you won't do, Yeah. you know, but um, Pam and I uh, got into pastoral work after we graduated college. So mm-hmm. Um, we had already were married and I was in the business world and ended up pastoring a little church in Hereford, Texas, mm-hmm. which is way out in West Texas. Mm-hmm. The end of the earth is three miles outside of town. <laughs> I'm serious. The earth disappears. <laughs> and then, um, fell in love with a, a church plant down in Dallas, Fort Worth called Gateway Church. Robert oh, Morris, yeah. uh, okay. he asked me to come. And so we helped him start the church. We went on staff there in the first year of the church. There were about 50 people there. Mm. And uh, so that was a great adventure for us because for the next seven years, we watched the church go from 50 to about 15,000 in wow. seven years. It was explosive. Yeah. Unbelievable church growth. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Yeah. And so uh, in 2007, when New Life Church in Colorado Springs called me, I I had a really good job. I mean, I yeah. had a great pastoral uh, worked there in yeah. uh, Dallas. And so we left though, packed up our car, drove to Colorado, didn't know a soul, and took over a church that had gone through a really difficult time. I mean, wow. just uh, had uh, the founding senior pastor had gone through a moral failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was on the front page of every newspaper. Wow. Lead story on CNN and Fox News uh, wow. for two or three days in a row. Uh, so I became the second pastor in the history of that church. Yeah. And then uh, I was there a hundred days. On my one hundredth day as the pastor there, we had a gunman come on our campus, opened fire, oh my killed gosh. two teenage girls in my parking lot, came into my building with a thousand rounds of ammo strapped to his body, and wow. um, so we, in thirteen months, the church went through two of the most unimaginable tragedies that a church could ever go through. Yeah, that's and horrible. So we have been a witness, quite honestly, at New Life of a. A miracle story. Yeah, I mean, I I I would have never chosen this story yeah. for my life, but I'm grateful for what I learned. Mm-hmm. I don't want to repeat any of it. Yeah, but for sure. um, here we are now, ten years uh, removed from the shooting, mm-hmm. and we have seen just miracles, miracles, miracles. I mean, so the church uh, people. Someone asked me the other day, "What do you what do you uh, what have you learned?" Yeah, and I think the thing that I've learned is that the church is more resilient than we imagine. Yeah. And here we are 2,000 years after Jesus started the church, yeah. and we're still having church. Yeah. And that's changed, and but the church is really resilient. Mm-hmm. The church is given to us by Jesus, filled yeah. with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so I think pastors, for the pastors that are listening to this, there's a sense in, so, in my mind that some pastors panic too quickly about their church. Yeah. And we, we need to hold the church more loosely than we're holding it. It's yeah. God, it's his church. Mm-hmm. It's the church of Jesus. And we all say that, yeah. We all believe it with our head, but do we really believe it with our heart? Yeah. I'm telling you as a firsthand witness, uh, I just believe New Life Church, the church where I pastor, uh, is the strongest group of people I've ever met, and they can survive just anything. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Man. That's kind of my story there, you know? So yeah. here we are. Yeah. A gunman. Yeah. That's that's crazy. It's Obviously, crazy. you don't expect something like that nope. to happen. We, You know, that the day that it happened was... Um, 
I mean, I can still almost remember every second of that day. I was, I was in my office. We Jack Hayford, legendary mm-hmm. Jack Hayford, had spoken there that day, and we were having lunch in my office. And he was headed back to the airport, and I heard the gunfire. Oh we were gosh. on the second floor. The gunfire was on the first floor, and it was surreal. I mean, Jordan, it was surreal, um, and to to come to a place of worship where. Uh, and then for violence to break out, to see the yeah. worst side of the enemy, yeah, you know, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, when I read that, that means something to me. Yeah, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Those are not just metaphors or hypotheticals. Yeah. It's real life to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but but to see the church rally, I, I'll tell you what saved New Life Church. Worship saved our church, mm-hmm. and. Um, we have a deep, deep culture of worship at New Life. Uh-huh. Um, songs come out of our church that are sung all over the world, mm-hmm. and songs like "Overcome" and um, you know "Strong God" and um, "I Am Free." And yeah. um, I mean, these are songs that have all been number one worship songs in the world. But they came out of our church during a real broken time. Yeah, you know the song "Overcome," uh, which was number one two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. It was written in a prayer meeting at six a.m. Wow. In a very hidden place. Nobody knew that that song would be sung all over the world. Yeah. But it was written during a prayer meeting, wow. during a very broken time in our church. Yeah. I tell pastors all the time that if you're going to entertain your church, then you've not set them up for the, the dark times. The happy, clappy entertainment churches are not good for our soul. Yeah. And so we're very positive. I mean, our church, our services are very inspirational and fun and yeah. uh, godly and joyful, but we don't. But we don't ignore the mm-hmm. difficult passages in the scripture. Yeah. If we're going to preach the 23rd Psalm, we also need to preach the 22nd Psalm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the 22nd Psalm is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. The 23rd Psalm is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yeah. Well, if you're going to preach the 23rd Psalm, which everyone wants to, then preach the 22nd Psalm. Yeah. Uh, That's and good. so I feel, I feel like if we ignore lament and suffering and darkness, then we have we are not preparing our people for the world in which they live. Mm-hmm. And so, for for us at New Life, the shooting, the scandal, the brokenness gave us permission, quite honestly, yeah, to talk about some of the difficult things that life is presents to us. And again, if you come to our service, we're joyful. Yeah. We are joyful. Yeah. But but we don't ignore those problematic scriptures. Yeah. And I think I think churches around the world, when they look at the American church. Sometimes they, they have to be able, I think they just kind of scratch their heads at what, what in the world are we yeah. saying over here that, yeah. you know, it's not a perpetual Disney experience anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Why would it be that way in America? It's not, yeah. and, and quite honestly, it's not. Mm-hmm. So Jordan, I think, I think the story of new life has given us permission to, mm-hmm. to talk about these things with some experience Yeah, that, that, that I think it's been helpful. Yeah, that's good. So as a pastor, you know, you, you step up on the stage after this, these tragedies have happened. Yeah. You step up on the stage with a microphone to address your congregation who wants answers, who wants direction. What do you say to them? Well, it's a great question. The, the night that I had to do that, I had the flu. Oh my Three gosh. days after the shooting, I was so sick. So on that Tuesday night, the shooting happened on a Sunday. On Monday and Tuesday, I was doing... I was live on every network. I'd done Fox News, CNN, oh my gosh. major networks. I, I had done nothing but media because people were fascinated by or saddened. And yeah. so I was so sick and burned out and run down. And so we had this Wednesday night prayer meeting and about 6,000 people showed up mm-hmm. for our prayer meeting. 
And I, I remember sitting in my office that day knowing that I was going to have to do exactly what you said. I was going to have to stand in front of the church and help them make sense of this. Yeah. And I was sick. And I said to the Lord, I don't have a sermon for this. Yeah. I don't. You know, it's a very raw, honest conversation with God. And the Lord's, I just remember very sweetly what God said back to me. He said, well, I've written it for you. And so I just actually read the Psalms out loud. I said, so I just picked out Psalm 1. I'm a tree planted by streams of living water. And I mean, I just began to read these Psalms. 22nd Psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 23rd Psalm, the Lord is, I just read these Psalms out loud. I said, yeah. I'm, I don't have a sermon for you tonight. So we're going to read the Psalms that have comforted and strengthened the church for mm-hmm. thousands of of years now. Yeah. And then I read the 51st Psalm, Lord, create in us a clean heart, O God, renew us in a right spirit. Don't take your presence from us. I begin to read those scriptures. Then I first Psalm, I will hide under the shadow of God Almighty. Under your sh- under your wings are our strength. So I begin to read those very familiar Psalms out yeah. loud over the church. And I made a few comments, but uh, quite honestly, sometimes we have to let the scriptures speak. Yeah. And I, I love Tozer's quote that we shouldn't Hey, we can't tame a lion. Why should we tame the scriptures? Yeah, you know, let wow. them loose. Let the scriptures loose. Yeah, quit quit apologizing for what the scriptures say. Yeah, turn it loose. And I felt that night was the first time in my pastoral career that I really felt permission to turn the scriptures loose. I don't have commentary. Yeah, I don't have a sermon for what just happened. Yeah, but the scriptures speak to travail and lament and sadness and brokenness. Yeah, with a lot a great deal of hopefulness. Yeah. And I think I think that was a big lesson for me that night. Mm-hmm. Just let the scriptures be loosed. Yeah, and and people still talk about that night. Uh, they may remember that sermon long after I'm gone. And it was wasn't a sermon. It was a reading of the scriptures. That's awesome. Yeah, man. I can you know we've never met, but I can man. I can just really tell that you're very transparent, and I can tell that you're the type of person that God has done something in your life to change you from one type of person to another. Yeah. And so Thank what I hear what I hear you say is you're a teenager saying I'm never want to be a pastor. Now <laughs> you're a pastor. Yeah. What happened in between? Like what Yeah. Take me to that moment where God changed your heart. Like how did it happen? Well, thank you very much for saying that. I think I think being with the very poor in my city is what one called me to be a pastor. Yeah. So when I was going through that um that journey of saying to the Lord, I don't want to be a pastor. I said, I'll do anything for you. And so mm-hmm. to prove it, we lived in a, a, a city at the time, Shreveport, Louisiana, which in the early 1990s had the highest murder capita, ca- wow. uh, murder rate per capita in the country. Yeah, Huge gang violence. So a lot of the West Coast gangs had come into Shreveport mm-hmm. and the Crips, the Bloods, all of them were in our city. And it was a very violent town, even though it was only a couple of hundred thousand people, mm-hmm. very violent. Mm-hmm. And our church, the pastor where I attended church, had he his his um, he had a mixed race heritage, and he had, so he really felt like he was called to help bridge the gap between the black community and the white community, which was yeah. noticeable. You know, growing up in the deep South, the yeah. racial divide yeah. was very noticeable. Um, mm-hmm. it was, there was a lot of inherent racism that comes, and he had such a passion for getting into the neighborhoods and helping solve the big problems in our city. So I was 22 years old full of vinegar, you know? So he sat down with me at a cafe on King's Highway and wrote out on a napkin, which I still have today, wow. his vision for the city. And I said, I'll do that. And so I, I put together a team of about 200 people. Mm-hmm. And we went into those neighborhoods and I the same, the way we called them parishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, 
I ask people to take 20 houses and to commit to visiting those 20 homes as often as possible. So my wife and I took 20 houses on Abbey Street in Allendale, which is at the time the most violent neighborhood. And I took 20 houses. I knew their names, I knew who they were. And every Saturday for over four years, so 150 times, I went into that neighborhood every Saturday. To evangelize, to pray? No, just to know them. I mean, evangelists obviously were there to proclaim Christ. I know, I knocked on their door and said, I'm Brady Boyd, this is my wife, Pam. We're gonna come by and see you. This is how it started out. Mm -hmm. I mean, they would look through the screen door at us, like, who are these white people (laughs) in my neighborhood? And I would say, I'm Brady Boyd, it's my wife, Pam. We love our city, Uh, we're here to get to know you. We're not here to ask anything. How can I pray for you today? Wow. So the the only question I would ask, how can I pray for you? So the first, most of us, we got doors slammed in our face. Yeah. But after about six months, when they knew we were going to come by every Saturday and we weren't handing out tracks and pushing stuff in their face, we said, hey, we're just here to pray for you. How can we pray for you? They started inviting us in. What turns out, most of the neighborhood was not, uh, you know, warlord gang members. They were elderly women. Yeah. They were shut-ins. Yeah. And so they, Miss White, um, we, there was one dear lady named Miss White who uh, invited us, her husband, uh, Mr. and Ms. White invited us into their house. They were the, and then when they invited us into their house, they were kind of the matriarch, patriarchs of the neighborhood. Yeah. When people saw them invite us in, well, the rest of the neighbors realized we weren't there to rob them or yeah. to be stupid. Yeah. And so they all started inviting. It, it turned into this thing where we had, we were in that neighborhood three or four hours on a Saturday. Wow. Now my wife and I, we didn't have any kids, we were newlyweds, and that was just our joy. But I think it was in that moment where I realized, I wanna do this work. This is pastoral work. If this is what pastoral work is, yeah. then I'll do it. That and is amazing. So, I mean, I did I did the funeral for Mr. White. Um, I was the only white person in the room. Yeah. My wife and I were the only two white people in the building. <laughs> wow. And I say that because Pam and I made up our mind growing up in the Deep South that we were gonna be a part of bridging these gaps. Yeah. And the only way you can bridge racial divides is get to know each other. Yeah. And to hear each other's stories and to listen intently mm-hmm. and to be empathetic to the story that, that mm-hmm. you're hearing. Not just listening to the story, but find yourself in that story. Find yourself in the empathy of the, you know, find empathy in the story. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like um, in our cities today, the key to breaking down racial barriers is relationships. Yeah. And it's always been that way, right? Yeah. That is amazing. I'm literally speechless. Like, yeah. because I'm so I'm just so used to whether I'm on the side of handing out the track and like saying, let me pray for you, let me convert yeah. you, or the other side of someone trying to like preach the message to me. I'm always used to someone doing it for a reason other than just love. Yeah. Or like loving someone. I'm always used to like our church is on first and whatever, or, yep. you know, like come to our service. Yep. So the fact that you guys went out there in this neighborhood where you didn't know if there was going to be a gun pulled on you or what. Yeah. Like, that's in fact, there were several times where the elderly women told us to come into their house because they knew the, I mean, we were in danger. I mean, we, I, quite honestly, what we were doing was kind of foolish in some yeah. ways. Uh, but these the old women in the neighborhood kind of adopted us. Yeah. Um, I think I think the problem with some of the evangelism that you just described is that we're looking for customers instead of looking for relationships. Wow. And we're not out trying to build our customer base. Um, yeah. The key to evangelism in the, in the 21st century, especially, is you have to let people belong. 
before mm-hmm. they're going to believe. Yeah. And the church has got it backwards in many times. They they ask you to believe in Christ and come and to belong to our church. Yeah. What we're finding in Colorado, uh, where there's legalized marijuana, where there's a very, it's a very secular, postmodern, post-church yeah, culture sure. where I'm pastoring, is that you have to let people belong first into the, mm-hmm. your church. Now, I'm not talking about serving, you know, teaching Sunday school. I'm talking about People come to Colorado to New Life Church and they say, is this a safe place to ask my difficult questions? Yeah. So what we say back to them is, you bet. Yeah. And we, we may not have answers to all your difficult questions, yeah. but we're a safe place to have the conversations. Yeah. So they if they sense that they can belong there, that the church is a safe place to ask difficult questions that may or may not ever be answered, can they then find a safe place because they're going to ask the question somewhere yeah. and somebody's going to help them answer those questions. Yeah. And I think the church, we've become so combative sometimes that, um, and this is the problem and not to get too deep in the weeds here with you, Jordan, but I think this is my problem with the culture wars mm-hmm. where they were trying to win a culture war. Yeah. Why? I mean, uh, I'm not trying to win a culture war. I'm trying to win people. Yeah. And so they're going to come. Uh, I mean, we just had, um, in my guest central where we welcome new guests, I had a lesbian couple who had just gotten married. With, they had seven kids. Mm-hmm. They had both left their husbands. They got married. They're standing in front of me. Yeah. And they have seven kids between them, a young, two young women, just mm-hmm. gotten married, which is legal now in Colorado and everywhere else. And so I have a decision to make. Am I going to uh, push them away because of my convictions or am I going to welcome them in yeah. to have more conversations? Yeah. And so uh, I welcomed them. Now they, they can't, you know, there's, I know pastors are asking, well, are you going to let them just serve? And no, but I welcome them into the church. In fact, she asked me, can my wife and I attend here? Yeah. I said, of course you can. Yeah. And I, but I said back to her, I said, however, I want you to know, I don't want to disappoint you later on. Uh, I have a biblical conviction that marriage is between a man and a woman. And I said, those convictions aren't going to change. I said, but we are more than welcome. And we would love to do, uh, be the pastors to your family. Yeah. And so I think I think the tone of evangelism, if we're if we're in evangelism to win some kind of award or change, to to win some kind of culture war, mm-hmm. that, then we're pushing people to the boundaries. We're pushing people away that we should be welcoming in. Yeah. So you don't have to give up your convictions. Yeah. Uh, to do what I'm describing, you just have to change your methodology. Yeah. And. We're seeing record numbers of baptisms right now. We, we baptized over 200 people yesterday. Wow. So we're recording this on a Monday. Yesterday, on a Sunday, we baptized 200 people at New Life. Wow. On one, on one weekend. And That's awesome. So I say that not to brag about numbers, because I never do that, but to tell you that I know this is working. Yeah. We're seeing crazy people come to Christ. I mean, yeah. really lost people come to Christ. Yeah. I'm not talking about Sunday school kids. I'm talking about lost people come yeah. to Christ at New Life. That is amazing. But it takes longer. And so I think for pastors, we get, we're inherently impatient. Mm-hmm. And if we'll be patient with the process, make disciples. Yeah. And that takes a long, long time. Yeah. It's not a three week class at the church. Yeah, I mean, all of those are good things, but don't 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 box in evangelism or discipleship into some kind of program. Yeah, it's all about relationships, and it takes a long time. That's some good stuff. I have so many questions I want to ask you now. I feel like I'm totally not going to follow any notes that I had. Okay, I'm just whatever. I'm good with you. <clears throat> so I want to back up a little bit because I can just I can sense the spirit of God just talking to you and. Your, I think your transparency is, it's just, it's very different. And I can tell that you're a person who just 
you let everyone see your life, everything that you do. You don't hide anything. You're you're just upfront and you are who you are. And I think that's very attractive, especially for a pastor to just, yeah, you know, you. for people to come, be able to come to you and just be themselves and talk to you. But I want to know how, how did God get you to that point? I guess more specifically, let me ask you this. When did your relationship with Jesus become real in your life? Yeah, I mean, it was in college. In I grew college. up in a Christian home. My mom uh, was a Pentecostal, tongue-talking woman. Nice. I think I heard speaking in tongues before I heard the English language. <laughs> um, you know, so I grew up in a assembly of God, Pentecostal, yeah. charismatic home. Nice. Uh, but I was very rebellious toward it. I think, I think... And my mom never pushed church on me. I mean, my, my dad was not a believer until after I became an adult. Mm -hmm. He was uh, a good man, a great father, but a terrible believer until yeah. I was in my 20s. Yeah. So it was my mom that had the most influence on me as yeah. a Christian, as a Christ follower. I think I think for, I'll say this for parents. Uh, I have two teenagers, 18 and 16, 18 year old son, 16 year old daughter. Uh, there's, there's, it seems like in the church right now, there's this, there's two groups of parents. There's this one group that is absolutely determined that their kids are gonna know the Bible, know the yeah. scriptures. They have this one hour devotional every night at their house around their table. And I, I don't mind that. I, I admire parents like that. Yeah. I mean, God bless them. I can't do that. Yeah. What we have, what my wife and I made a decision when our kids were really, really young, that we were gonna live an attractive life in front of our kids yeah. and, and I'll let them choose it on their own. Yeah. Now we, they know the Bible and we taught them Bible stories and we did, you know, uh, we pray, I prayed over them every night and mm -hmm. we, I taught, uh, read the scriptures over them, but it was not, it wasn't a formula. Yeah. And I think for me, Jordan, I, I appreciated the space that my mom and dad gave me yeah. to find Jesus. Yeah. Not just to learn about him, mm -hmm. but to find him, yeah. to discover him. Mm -hmm. And, if we, I think, I think for parents, and I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not being critical of parents who have a super strict formula. Yeah. I just think sometimes the formula can replace the revelation. Yeah. And I want Oof. my kids to be, have Jesus revealed to them. Yes. And for me, that's where it happened for me. I had a revelation of, of Jesus of who he was and what he means to what he means to me and that's never gone away I'm 50 years old now and I still have a profound growing sense of who Jesus is in my yeah. life and who the person of Jesus mm -hmm. is that's what I want for my kids I want them to find Jesus to yeah. discover Jesus and they have yeah the truth is they have they yeah. both have been baptized they both have professed Christ they really love church mm -hmm. they're great kids yeah. I'm just so I love my kids they're great they're fantastic mm -hmm. but we did it a lot of prayer, a lot of seeking God and hoping and praying that they would discover Jesus yeah. and not just be fed Jesus. Like you can force feed your kids a yeah. lot of Jesus and they'll, you know, they'll reject the food later on. But yeah. if they discover how good fried chicken is, then they'll, <laughs> they'll like fried chicken the rest of their life. When yeah. you make them eat healthy food, yeah. they end up rejecting the healthy yeah. food that can very well save them, you know? And so I think, I think for parents, if they would just trust the Lord more mm -hmm. with their kids and live a life that's contagious in front of their kids. Pam yeah. and I just decided if, if our walk with Jesus is not contagious, then the problem's not with our kids, the problem's with us. Yeah. So Pam great. and I just tried to live a contagious life in front of them, not a religious, super churchy life. Mm -hmm. uh, we have fun, we have a lot of fun at our house and uh, we're, not, we're not churchy religious people but we're sincere people mm -hmm. and they, our kids, your kids are watching you. Yeah. They watch and 
You know, Jordan, I, I think I think I appreciate what you said. I, I do want to live transparently, um, but I don't. I don't tell everybody everything. I mean, I have mm-hmm. a close circle of friends that I share my struggles with, or my temptations with, or um, things that the Lord is dealing with me on a personal level. I think mm-hmm. for pastors, uh, what I would encourage them is is to be, to be honest yeah. about victories that you've had in your life. Um, I think there's a boundary about with pastors. If you share ongoing struggles, that's not helpful to your congregation. Yeah, there's a other group of people I share that with, mm-hmm. um, but I do share honestly about struggles that I've overcome. Yeah, and I think I think that gives people permission to talk about their own struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think I think if we put on too many fake masks in church, then we're teaching our people that to follow Jesus is to be a wear a fake mask. Yeah. And um, that's not helpful. It's not it's not making disciples. It's mm-hmm. making churchy people. Yeah, you know. Agreed. Yep, for sure. Okay, um, I think we're we're running out of time pretty quickly. I think we could end up talking for another hour. Yeah. Um, I have to ask uh, the marijuana. It's yeah. illegal in totally. Colorado. Yep. How has that? How have you seen that play out? It's not good. It's not a good thing, Jordan. Yeah. Um, I understand the medicinal benefits, yeah. and there certainly are some medicinal benefits to marijuana. I have a, a dear friend right now. She's struggling in the last stages of, of a fight against cancer, mm-hmm. and the only thing that allows her to go through the chemo is she has to smoke medicinal marijuana mm-hmm. to tolerate the chemo. So mm-hmm. there are certainly some benefits to marijuana. I don't think we know all of them yet. I don't think enough research has been done, mm-hmm. but the recreational use of marijuana is not a good thing. Yeah. It has not been good. It's led to uh, more homelessness, mm-hmm. more overdoses, and more um, drunken driving incidents in Colorado mm-hmm. than we had before. Wow. Um, and I think people sometimes equate it with alcohol. Yeah. Um, having a glass of wine with your meal is, I don't have a problem with that. No, I mean, I, I, I'm not uptight about all that. Mm-hmm. But to smoke a, smoke a joint yeah. is for one reason, and that's to escape. Yeah. So I think I think when you smoke pot, you're escaping from something. Wow. And you're allowing, and you're allowing something to take control of your mind and your emotions that uh, may or may not be helpful. Yeah. And so I'm not a prude about these things. I, mm-hmm. I want I want to be open minded about again the scientific medicinal benefits of marijuana, yeah. but in our state, it has not been a good thing. Yeah. And we have recreate. There are more recreational marijuana dispensaries in Denver than Starbucks. Yeah. Uh, so wow. they're everywhere. I mean, if That's you have crazy. a driver's license and you're 21, you can buy marijuana in Colorado like you buy a can of beer. So it's not wow. not difficult to yeah. find marijuana, but it's it's causing a huge problem with teenagers because they're smoking their parents' pot now. Yeah. And this marijuana is four or five times higher in THC levels than uh, any other pot you find off the streets. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, it's extreme, it's greenhouse grown, potent wow. stuff. So I was just in the ER visiting one of the members of our church and the ER nurse there said, uh, how, what, I asked him this question that you asked me. He says, Brady, our ER is flooded every weekend with people overdosing on marijuana. Wow. He said, it has become a chronic, serious issue in the state of Colorado. That is insane. So it's not a good experiment. I understand yeah. people, um, I understand the arguments pro and con for some of it. 
as a pastor, I have seen the effects it has on people. Mm-hmm. It's a gateway drug. It yeah. is. Don't let anybody convince you otherwise. It does lead to other addictions. Yeah. And it's very addictive. Um, mm-hmm. I understand it helps you calm down. It helps you be peaceful. But for every 2,000 pounds of marijuana that's brought into the United States, somebody dies. Yeah. And um, that's, that's, that's legitimate. Yeah. And, and the legal... The legally grown marijuana in Colorado is now become uh, the excess has now being shipped all over the country uh, illegally. Mm-hmm. So we have now become the grow point uh, for illegal marijuana that's here in Tulsa, that's all over Oklahoma. A yeah. lot of that's coming from Colorado. So it creates it creates its own uh, criminal uh, enterprises. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it's a good thing. I, I personally am opposed to it. I don't like the effects it has on yeah. people's lives. Uh, I think if we could somehow harness the medicinal benefits Mm -hmm. and use those appropriately, I'm fine with that. Yeah. I want people who are struggling with pain to be uh, pain free. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's, that's a very small number of people that it helps. Agreed. Yeah. I think for me seeing it, you know, in my family, my friends growing up, I always heard the arguments of like, marijuana is okay. It's not as bad as alcohol. It's not addictive, but I, I agree with what you're saying, and I think every person that I can think of that was huge into marijuana, their life has not gone in a good direction. And it doesn't yeah. matter how many, you know, how many arguments you can give me and statistics about their less, you know, yeah. um, car wrecks or tragedies with marijuana than alcohol. Every single person that I can think of, their life didn't go in a good direction. And so, yeah, I just, I just, I kind of thought, you know, since it, it just became legal in Colorado that you would have a unique. Yeah, we're about two and a half years it. into its legalization mm-hmm. and I can't think of anybody that's clear minded that's for it. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, the, well, I think we took in $70 billion mm-hmm. uh, in August of last year. I mean, it, it's insane amount of money yeah. and people are coming to our state now for, rec- I mean, they're coming to pot tourism is a yeah. big deal in Colorado now. Mm-hmm. People are coming to our state and smoking pot. So. It's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think people are trying to escape a great deal of pain right now, and the church needs to wake up and say, "Okay, if all these people are s- struggling and are trying to find relief from some internal pain that they're feeling, yeah, or what can we do as a response to that?" Yeah, and um, so we're having serious conversations about that in our mm-hmm. church, and I talk about it out of the pulpit. Yeah, that's I mean, good. I, I watched a young couple walk into my building not long ago, a few weeks ago. They, they were smoking a joint, walking into my building. It's legal. I mean, so they had a little four-year-old in between them, and they were passing wow. a joint over her head, finishing it up before oh they came my into gosh. my worship service. So it, I smell it in my parking lot almost every weekend. Wow. Because people, as soon as they leave worship, go out to their car and light up, and I can smell it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, uh, you know, it's a serious issue. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, uh, sorry that we got to kind of stop here. We're, we're running out of time. One thing I wanted to ask you before we ended, is there a book that you can recommend for us that has impacted you and influenced you greatly in your story? Well, I read all the time, but I'll tell you a book that I'm, uh, I think every pastor should read. Mm-hmm. It's called The Pastor by Eugene Peterson. Okay. It's his memoirs. Uh, it's I love Eugene. I've been to his house in Montana. Um, he is, he's a, he's a sage. He's a poet. He's, 
Um, I think his idea of pastoral work mm-hmm. is a helpful reminder. So The Pastor, the Pastor. by Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson. Uh, is a great, great book that I would recommend right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really impacted me deeply. Mm-hmm. Love it. What book of the Bible would you recommend? Like what, where, where have you been a lot lately in scripture? Well, if you're going to read Jesus, read, uh, I, I like Luke. I mean, mm-hmm. I like the book of Luke because it was, it was Luke's idea you see one of the predominant thoughts in the book of Luke about letting the outsider become the insider, the marginalized becoming okay. part. I love that about nice. Luke. If I'm going to read one of the Pauline texts, it's Ephesians. I mean, mm-hmm. Ephesians is oh, yeah. his manifesto. It was his, yeah. I think it, uh, it was a prison letter. It was a, it was a letter that written later in his life where mm-hmm. Paul, I think, had the greatest amount of clarity about who Jesus was and what does mm-hmm. it mean to follow him. Mm-hmm. So I would go, if I only had two books of the Bible to read, I'd read Luke and Ephesians. Nice. And those are my favorites. Those are just personal favorites, though. Nice. Okay, really the last question, I promise. Okay. Um, so with Century Leadership and speaking into the next generation of leaders, when you look at the next generation of leaders, is there one particular thing that you think the next generation should be focusing on? Yeah, about, I think the next generation uh, needs to be focused on being a faithful witness Mm-hmm. And I, 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 those words, I, I just spoke to this to my staff. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a celebrity culture and we're, we are searching and seeking for the wrong things in ministry right now. Yeah. And I tell my young, I have a lot of really young, talented leaders on my staff and my team. Mm-hmm. And I am constantly telling them, be faithful, be a faithful witness, be faithful to the God. It's like the greatest lie we've been told, Jordan, is that we can do anything we want. That's yeah. not true. Yeah. You know, if you can dream it, you can achieve it. That's that's not even in the Bible. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've been dreaming about a whole bunch of things that yeah. I'm never going to achieve. I, it's, it's humanly impossible. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a falsehood that we've bought into. See, a, we've Americanized our theology to a degree now where we can't even separate Americanism from theology sometimes. Wow. And I'm proud to be an American, but I, I've learned that the best thing that Jesus calls me to is being a faithful witness of his resurrection yeah. and not uh, yes. not looking for a renown, not looking for the stage, not looking for the spotlight. We are living in a, uh, a culture obsessed with attention. Yeah. Um, and we have to help young leaders get free from that because it's going to damage them. Yeah. You know, being obsessed with being famous and being known and being having renown and Jesus, this was the big thing that Jesus addressed his own disciples about. Yeah. You know, they were arguing behind him, you know, walking behind him, arguing which one of them was the greatest. Yeah. And Jesus gave us a very countercultural way of uh, being leaders, washing the feet, taking the low road, taking the, the, in, the seat at the end of the table. Yeah. Um, I mean, Jesus emphasized this constantly. This is before social media. Can you imagine yeah. how uh, if Peter was on Twitter? I mean, come yeah. on. I mean, yeah. that would have been. I, I <laughs> if Twitter had Peter would have blown up Twitter. I mean, yeah, right for sure. But um, and Jesus would have corrected it though. Yeah. And so I, I tell people, take the spotlight off yourself. Um, quit, quit seeking renown. Quit seeking attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe just be a faithful witness. Mm-hmm. Right now, we need faithful witnesses. Uh, out of the pulpit, out of the leadership. And so I think that's, that's it gives me hope. I'm seeing that. I'm seeing a lot of humble young leaders who are just wanting to worship. They just want to be with Jesus. They want the spirit of God in their life. And they're not out seeking yeah. the stage. The stage is not our friend all the time. Yeah, for sure. Well, Brady, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I really thank enjoyed you. chatting with you. Yeah, and, uh, it's been fun. Wish you the best. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Jordan. 
Well, again, we want to send a very, very special thank you to Pastor Brady Boyd out in Colorado Springs for joining us on the Century Leadership Podcast. It was such a blessing having him and just being able to talk with him and hear some of the stories and the things that God has done in his life. If you want to connect with Century Leadership, you can find us on Twitter at Century underscore leader. You can head over to Facebook and check out the brand new Century Leadership Facebook page by simply searching Century Leadership. You can also go to centryleadership.com for more details. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to today's episode. We really appreciate having you and we hope you have a wonderful and blessed day.